0: This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial.
1: It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful.
2: Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them.
1: Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think.
3: Think Health on 2 R one o 107.3. Hello, I'm Nina Copal, and this is Think Health. Today on
2: the show... So many people, the moment after you tell them, go, are you, are you contagious? Wait, we've shared a bunch of drinks in the past week, sort of thing. The ones who knew something about it, they'd know. It's in your lungs, and it's contagious as hell.
3: We talk about the world's number one infectious killer. But first, when it comes to breastfeeding, the consensus is in... Medical professionals in Australia and around the world say that breastfeeding helps babies nutrition and strengthens their immunity. Both the World Health Organization and UNICEF recommend that babies be exclusively breastfed for the first six months of their lives, and that breastfeeding should continue after that with the appropriate introduction of solids. But sometimes, that just isn't possible.
4: I felt like a total failure when we had to add formula to his diet, so much so that when we got home, I remember actually telling my husband, this is the tin of failure, like the formula tin was the tin of failure, sitting on our bench at home, and every time I looked at it for about four days, I would just cry.
3: This is Tamsin. She's a working mum to little Uri, who's crawling around and playing as we sit on her couch in Sydney's inner west. If you hear any little people
4: sounds, as Tamsin shares her story, that's why. So my son Ari was born last August, and when he was born, he was a very tiny baby. So he was born at 2.4 kilos, which is right on the very kind of cusp of the doctors being worried about the size of your baby, even though he was full term. On average, babies at this age gain about 200 grams a week,
3: but baby Ari was gaining less than 100 grams a week. And that had Tamsin worried.
4: So we ended up on this whirlwind of why is he not gaining weight? What can we do to fix this? You know, this big sort of health system whirlwind, all of which we had really good experiences with the health system, but ended up trying a whole lot of different things. So as well as breastfeeding, I ended up pumping, so breast pumping, so as well as Being breastfed, Ari would then get a breast milk top up straight after every breastfeed. We did that for a couple of weeks and he still was not gaining weight. We saw a lactation consultant. You know, the cycle went on. And in the end, we ended up doing what I now know is is a system called mix feeding, where Ari was both breastfed and received pumped breast milk and drank formula. But this wasn't easy
3: for Tamsin to come to terms with. She had spent her whole pregnancy and the first weeks of Ari's life convinced that breastfeeding was the best way to go. That breastfeeding was the way that she would ensure her son was healthy. But the situation was out of her control.
4: And, you know, making up the bottles, it really upset me. I had to get my mum and my husband to give it to Ari. It was extremely upsetting. And looking back, I think that's the sort of... Uh, when it would have been really good to have support from people. I mean, my family and friends were all incredibly, you know, supportive about it. They were like, look, you're doing the right thing. You're feeding your baby. None of the nurses that I saw were negative or told me it was the wrong thing. But there was that sort of underlying current that because it had never been spoken about, either in pre or postnatal discussions, that this was the wrong thing to be doing or the wrong scenario that I'd sort of found myself in I suppose there was also never told to me that you know what you can be a successful mix feeder so that just because your baby has to have some formula doesn't mean that that's like the end of breastfeeding that you can do both and you can do both really successfully for a long time which is what we ended up doing but we never got that information from people this lack of information
3: in a way it's kind of understandable Doctors and other health experts advise women during pregnancy to emphasize the importance of breastfeeding because science shows that for babies it's just better. They also know it isn't always easy at first to breastfeed, and maybe they're trying to encourage mothers to persist and not turn to formula as soon as things get a bit hard. But when Tamsin suddenly had to change her plans
4: and work at how to provide her baby with a bottle, she didn't really know where to start. So much so that I did not know how to make a bottle. When I was sort of sent home from the clinic that first day, I had this bottle of formula. I had a bottle. I didn't know the temperature it was supposed to be. I didn't know (laughs) the best way to make it. And look, it ended up working really well for us. Ari is now really healthy. He gained weight after starting to have the formula. He's a really happy, healthy baby, but it was really hard to get information about it. And to have people saying, you know what? It's okay, but this is what you have to do.
1: Jessica Appleton. I'm a PhD candidate with the Faculty of Health at UTS.
3: Jessica is interested in new mums like Tamsin, who, for whatever reason, end up using formula to feed their babies.
1: I did a little bit of research before I came to my PhD, uh, and I looked at how parents were talking using online discussion forums. So that was my honours work here at UTS. And on it, I noticed there was this contention between breastfeeding and formula feeding, and it seemed like a pretty interesting topic to talk about. And I was also looking at obesity prevention. So those kind of two interests kind of came together and I looked at the research that we have around infant feeding and obesity prevention and that formula-fed babies may be at higher risk of these these things that might then lead to later risk of obesity. And so I wanted to know, well, why would that be? So that's when I started looking at it and realised there's not a lot of research around parents' use of formula. So what research are you doing to try fill that gap? So... I'm trying to fill the gap, but probably only doing a small amount towards it. <laughs> I am looking at how parents use formula in the first nine months of life. So we've done a questionnaire and asked parents when their babies were between zero and three months and then at six months and then at nine months. And so we have some information about how they use formula. I'm currently analysing that data, so I don't actually have any results to share with you today. but. I will do. You'll get there. Yeah. And then the other thing I'm doing is talking to parents about how they use formula and their experience of using it. Because the other big part of my PhD work is not only how they're using it, but why they do it that way. And where do they get information from? What kind of sources of information they use? Because there's evidence around when we look at this, that there is actually maybe not so much information for these parents. And that's what Tamsin was getting at, right? It
4: was really hard to get
1: information
4: about it, and to have people saying, you know what, it's okay, but this is what you have to do. So, what information is available? I asked Jessica.
3: So, you said you started off on these online forums. Is that where parents are getting a lot of
1: their information? Yes, sometimes. And how they actually use that is a bit interesting. Like I, I'm not actually sure I know how parents use it because I've, I've done interviews with some mums and they were talking about using online forums and I was, I was trying to ascertain from them, how do you actually, you know, what do you do with that information? And they're like, oh, you know, I might look at this and look at that and then maybe look at this bit of information and then make up my own mind. So it's really interesting how they actually incorporate that information in into what they actually do with their child.
3: How do they make that decision? It seems like such a big decision to make to come from strangers in on an online forum who probably don't have any medical experience.
1: Yeah, well, I, I can't actually speak to how they do that because i, I that's a kind of another question which would be really interesting to research. I suppose maybe at a later date I'd look at that. I, I think that they seem to incorporate what they've been told by some authority source. Again, it depends on how they perceive that. So whether it's their family or friends, their mum, their child health nurse, their paediatrician. Yeah, it's like, like lots of health decisions that we make. It all depends on what we presume is the best information. I'm really curious about these forums
3: and this idea that parents are turning to them for advice on how to raise their babies. To see what goes on, I joined one and found a thread that I'm going to
1: recreate for you. Whilst I'm pregnant with my fourth, I'm not very experienced with breastfeeding. I gave up quickly due to exhaustion and pain. I have always been told you must choose one or the other. Is it possible to breastfeed and bottle feed when I'm needing a break? That's going to happen because I'm going back to work and study very quickly. I have a lot of helpers, however, and my mum's trying to convince me to breastfeed and supplement with bottle if needed. She's a mothercraft nurse, though I know the hospital will be against this. Your views, please. And these
3: were the comments that this mum got in response.
4: There is no option to exclusively breastfeed as you are
1: planning back to work? What do you mean by this? Plenty of women exclusively breastfeed even after returning to work. You can. My only advice would be to do all that you can to establish effective breastfeeding first. So you can maximise your supply, then gradually introduce a bottle after a month or six weeks.
3: My third was breastfed almost exclusively for six to eight months as he refused a bottle. I tried and tried, but he just wanted breast milk. But does this tension between formula users and breastfeeders exist only online?
4: When I first sort of pulled out a bottle, like in public, instead of whipping out the boob, it was something I was sort of looking around going, you know, are people judging me? Like... That I'm doing the wrong thing especially because I think I live in sort of the inner west of Sydney where you know it's a little bit more of an alternative community people are very into um, the breastfeeding which I think is great I wanted to be a breastfeeder but I think at the end of the day if you've got a hungry baby or if you've got a baby that is not doing what should be
1: doing which is our scenario you'll almost do anything at that point to feed your baby. (laughs) there's been a bit of research over the last couple of years talking to parents who don't breastfeed and that's that's a real really strong theme about feeling guilty about not breastfeeding feeling uh, less supported by health professionals and other structures around and feeling judged by society so i was really interested and surprised that some of the parents that i spoke to actually had experiences where they had felt actually judged in a public place and people actually talking, coming up to them and saying things about using formula or, you know, you should be breastfeeding, you know, people, strangers and, and also, you know, um, you know, extended family and things like that.
3: According to the 2010 Australian National Breastfeeding Survey, 55% of children at six months of age had received non-human milk or formula. So while women do seem to feel pressure to breastfeed, using formula seems to be quite common. But is that something we should be concerned about? Jessica Appleton, PhD candidate at the University of Technology, Sydney, says
1: there are some risks involved. My interest in looking at formula is as a potential risk factor for later overweight and obesity. And another risk factor is rapid weight gain in infancy. So we know that infants that have rapid weight gain, which is, it's a really specific term that we use, which is about how rapidly a baby puts on weight over the first kind of year to two years. We measure baby's growth on growth percentile charts, and we usually expect a baby to grow along the percentile chart that they start with. So their birth weight, you know, they may be sitting on the 50th percentile, and we usually expect their growth to maintain around those kind of that, that kind of line. Um, rapid weight gain is when they start having that increasing weight that then crosses percentile lines so they'll go from the 50th to the 60th to the 70th within you know the first 12 months Um, and sometimes people look at over the first two years and just the growth trajectories in that time so what we do know from research is that babies that use formula are more likely to have that rapid weight gain so that kind of made me to think, well, why is that? What is it about formula feeding that might lead to this rapid weight gain? And like I said, we don't know a lot about how people are using formula, so that's part of the problem is because we can't actually articulate how people are using it in general anyway. But if you do look at using formula, there, there might be a couple of candidate practices that might then increase the risk. So a um, really obvious one would be feeding like bigger bottles or feeding the baby more um, than they might need. Um, another one um, that there is a bit of research around is the protein content in formulas. So formula with higher protein content has been shown to have lead to more rapid weight gain. What I'm going to look at is what evidence is there around these practices so that we could advise the best practices to give parents to use formula in the best way to reduce the chances of rapid weight
3: gain. So, so it would be a matter of saying with formula the best times to feed would be this or the, the best amount would be this as opposed to just saying don't use it it's bad?
1: Well yeah so uh, I suppose that the first the first point in terms of infant feeding guidelines is uh, you know breastfeeding is the first option but then once if you're not breastfeeding what's the best way to feed formula is is where I'm coming from and yeah so it might not be the times I think the the main thing would be to feed, um, feed to infants cues of their own hunger and satiety. So um, listening to the baby when they actually are full and when they're they're hungry. And also being attentive in how you feed. So um, one of the things that people often note, the difference between breastfeeding and bottle feeding is, or using formula in a bottle, is that when you feed with a bottle, the parent or the, the carer who's feeding the bottle has a lot more control over how much the baby drinks. So we wonder whether that actually then Makes influences the baby to drink more than they might if they didn't have that control. So there's just this natural
3: control going on with breastfeeding where the mother's producing the right amount of, of food. Is that?
1: Yeah, and it, with breastfeeding, the baby has to continue to suckle to get the milk out of the breast, whereas with a bottle, there's that flow from the teat. Right, yeah. So it's harder to regulate. Yeah, so it is harder to regulate for the infant and for the
3: parent. But for Tamsin and baby Ari, formula was exactly what the doctor ordered. What would you tell someone who's pregnant now to expect, or how would you prepare them? What would your advice be?
4: Well, first of off, I'd say try really hard to breastfeed because it was wonderful. Like, there was lots of, not only was it beneficial for Ari, it was great for our bonding as well and even though we couldn't do it full-time I loved breastfeeding so I'd say definitely try and keep trying but also do not feel like a failure if it doesn't work out for you and also you can mix feed really successfully having a bottle or two of formula a day and the rest of the feeding breastfeeding we did that for months and I wish that was what someone had told me that doing both is totally doable and okay. That it's not either all breast or all formula, but it's totally possible to mix it and to do that really successfully.
3: Working mum, Tamsin Lloyd, ending that story.
2: You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3.
3: How many people around the world do you think have tuberculosis right now? Give it a guess. One in five, maybe? Too high? One in ten? Turns out the actual figure is higher than you might think. It's actually one in three. Tuberculosis is the world's number one infectious killer, and yet we rarely hear about it. Our producer Sam King wanted to find out what life was like for people who have TB, lurking inactive in their lung tissue.
2: I went to a party. One of my friends found out and was under the impression it was common knowledge. I think it was about two hours after they found out that everyone at the party knew. That sucked. Yeah. That really sucked. Because, yeah, up up until then, it was on the download. Didn't want people to know about it. Yeah, I guess it got out and wasn't much I could do.
0: Okay, so I'm just going to jump in here and break the ice. This is a friend of mine. We'll call him Hamish. He has tuberculosis.
2: After that, I figured not to keep it a secret, I guess. Most people who I know know that I have it. I don't tell everyone that I work with. That's sort of the one thing I don't tell people. Everyone I'm in a platonic or any other relationship, I usually share it. I didn't actually know what the hell tuberculosis was until I actually had it in my lungs.
0: And neither did I really, until speaking with Hamish. So let's take a moment to clear that up. Tuberculosis is caused by a bacterial species known as Mycobacterium tuberculosis. One in three people in the world are infected with Mycobacterium tuberculosis. But here's the thing. There's a world of difference between being infected with this bacterium and
5: being sick with tuberculosis. So you can be infected with tuberculosis, but you don't become sick because you're very well nourished. You're eating a healthy diet. You get enough sleep. You're not living in overcrowded settings. You're not living in poverty. This is Dr. Paul Mason. He's done extensive work with tuberculosis patients around the world. I'll let him take it from here. Now, if you're not living with those risk factors, then the likelihood of becoming sick with tuberculosis is lower. The number of people who get tuberculosis every year is over 9.6 million. The good news is it's a curable disease, so most of those cases are cured. Sadly, over 1.5 million people still die from the disease. Which today makes
0: tuberculosis the world's leading infectious killer. You may have heard of the symptoms the coughing, night sweats, the abscesses in the lungs.
5: Don't forget, though, that not all forms of tuberculosis are lung infections.
0: In up to 20% of active cases, the infection spreads beyond the lungs, which is known as extrapulmonary tuberculosis. It's a horrible way to go, but what's interesting is how it only affects a very small minority of the people who are actually infected with the bacterium. So I wanted to ask, what is life like for the one in three people who are living with a latent tuberculosis infection right now? The stigma of
5: tuberculosis, depending on the location, can be very harsh.
2: People have actually told me they got nervous, and so, like so many people, the moment after you tell them, go, are you, are you contagious? Wait, we've shared a bunch of drinks in the past week, sort of thing. Yeah. And so they get instantly terrified of that. That's a big one, is drinks. Everyone thought, oh, that's contagious as hell. The ones who knew something about it, they'd know. It's in your lungs, and it's contagious as hell.
0: What do you do to manage it?
2: Well, at the moment, nothing, Um, which shocked me.
0: So there's no regular checkups?
2: Nope. None locked in. It's okay. Go out into the world, and let's let's hope nothing happens. How often
0: do you get checked up?
2: I've been probably twice in the past year. When was the last time? Six months ago. Wow. Yeah, a while ago. Um, Which I was really panicky about at first. So after after you find out you get it, straight away they will get you some chest x-rays and get you on antibiotics and I want to say vitamin B. Again, it was a long time ago, but you need to take around about four pills a day, spread out throughout the day.
0: And that's why they figure out whether or not it's active.
2: They know straight away if it's uh, active or not. I see. They just check the chest x-ray. All right, you're not active. You don't need to be locked up or anything. Here are your vitamins and antibiotics. Take however many a day for six months. So six months, I got really good at swallowing pills and having my blood taken. Because once a month during those six months, you go in get your blood taken, they make sure you're still okay, not reacting badly to the medication which apparently does have a fair few side effects, uh, pretty commonly. After that you get to the end and it's, not nah, you're fine. Go, yeah, live your life. I can remember at first every time I'd get like a slight cold or anything like that, have a bit of a cough, you know, I'd run into the hospital and say, it's activated, it's activated, let's lock me down, get me some of the good meds. The way they almost brush it off in a way, is reassuring and also worrying, because she'd go, do you have night sweats? And list off a couple of other symptoms. I'd say no, she'd go, no, you don't have it. Trust me, you'll know when you do. That's what I also tell people. It's not like the common cold. I mean, it does kill however many people a year. You'll... It's not a slight tickle in the throat. When it activates, it's activated tuberculosis. It's a different kettle of fish. So you feel, you feel confident
0: being in Australia, though.
2: I feel very confident being yeah, in Australia. You know, like the as I say, the a treatment and also just service that I've been provided has been above and beyond. Mm. All free as well, which has been great. I was living on uni when at the time had very little money, and yeah, it was all taken care of. All regular checkups, didn't pay a single dime for the medication, for the x-rays, everything. It was it was great. The whole, the system was perfect, as far as I'm concerned. I was blown away. Made something that should have been really difficult, really easy.
0: Of course, it's a different story in developing countries where TB is much more prevalent and treatment harder to come by. Dr. Mason worked with tuberculosis patients in Vietnam where
5: there's no safety net and the stigma is much more harsh. There is one TB patient who sticks in my mind probably because it was the first TB patient that I interviewed, he was a, a lottery ticket seller. This is a lottery run by the government so that people who are poor and have no other means of income can have some form of income. So he would get 10% commission, which was about 1,000 Vietnamese dong, 5 cents. And in any given day, he would sell between 30 to 50 tickets, which means he was living on $1.50 to maybe $2.50 a day. And that, that covers your essentials. That covers, you know, some rice and it covers maybe something to go with that. You know, it, it doesn't cover a lot. So he eventually became sick with tuberculosis and he lost so much weight that this person... When I met him, he was 50 kilograms, which is already quite light for a grown man. But when he was at his sickest, he was 30 kilograms. 30? 30. 30 kilograms. Wow. And uh, so he, he and his wife moved apart for a while he didn't want her to become sick and so isolation is a very strong part of the stigma people can be shunned very abruptly told not to share social spaces you know they'll be cut off from going drinking with the boys or going out playing cards or you know or even selling your tickets locally What amazed me was his perseverance and his tenacity in adhering to tuberculosis treatment, no matter how hard it became for him. And the side effects of the drugs were really hard. He couldn't sell his tickets locally because people were afraid that they would get sick, which was a false belief, but nonetheless, because of the lack of public education, people didn't want to touch anything he had touched, didn't want to go near him. So he had to walk even further every day to sell these... Lottery tickets, and of course, his income was then affected by that, and his nutrition would have, wouldn't have been very good. So, and he had no other means of, of addressing these shortfalls in his life. You know, I mean, these people who are under conditions of unnecessary stress, their fallback system or their safety net is just not as wide. It's mm. very, you know, and in
0: some cases, non existent.
5: Yeah, non existent. Yeah. yeah. So, something like tuberculosis can just really knock them out of the water. What happened to him? He actually got better, which was incredible because, because of all the hurdles that he had to surmount to get better and to complete his treatment, was incredible. So I met him at the end of his treatment, so uh, towards the end of his treatment, and he needed to get or he he was told to get an X-ray to find out whether or not his treatment had been successful, but he couldn't afford the X-ray. It cost him eight dollars to get, so one hundred sixty thousand Vietnamese dong to get this X-ray, but he couldn't afford it because he has no money to put away to save money. He's already, you know, asked friends and family for, for money already, so he can't ask them again because they don't have a lot of money. When I, when I met him, we organized a free x-ray for him. Just, you know, I mean, he'd already gone through the treatment. When, when I met him after he had this x-ray and went to his village and walked around, he was a completely different person to the person I'd met when I first met him because he was standing upright, he was happy, he was able to sell his tickets locally. Mm. Um, more comfortable being around people. Yeah, 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 he was more comfortable and he was also had this, this doctor's certificate to go, look, I'm better, <laughs> you, you don't need mm. to be afraid. It completely transformed his life just to have a certificate to tell him that he was better. Yeah. So, and, and this is someone who was already under treatment, who was not infectious. What he needed and what was so simple for, for me to organise for him was this free x-ray. You know, it's and when I saw how easy it is to help one person, I'm just thinking, why aren't we doing more? Why are people at the end of the treatment still suffering the social consequences of this disease, the stigma of this disease even though they've finished almost finished treatment? And if this is a treatable
0: condition that a third of us carry, why is there so much social stigma in the first place? Could it be because it's just not that well understood? Because people don't really know how you get it, who you can get it from, how it's transferred, how widespread it really is. I mean, without wanting to make assumptions, you probably thought Hamish picked it up overseas while traveling, right?
2: I was working in an Indian restaurant out in Penrith and got a letter in the mail saying, someone has identified you as someone they've been in contact with tuberculosis, come in, get checked we'll make sure you're okay whenever i tell anyone you know i got it from an indian restaurant everyone goes oh okay so it was someone who got it in india brought it back and then you got it from them it could have been i mean it's all anonymous that the hospital's not allowed to tell me exactly who gave it to me i have a pretty good hunch you know there was someone who was coughing a lot quite unhealthy um I, I'm pretty sure I know who it was. Again, just suspicion. But she's the only person I can remember coughing and is the person who I worked in the closest proximity to. And she was Australian, born and bred like several de- generations. It was from Australia. It was tuberculosis from Australia.
3: Sam King with that story. Don't forget, if you'd like to find out more about anything you've heard today, you can visit us at 2SER.com forward slash Think Health. We're also available on demand. Just search for Think Health in your favourite podcast app. Please remember that journalists are not doctors. If we've made you ask questions, go and see your GP. This show is produced with the support of University of Technology Sydney Faculty of Health and 2SER. I'm Nina Copel. Thanks for having me the past few weeks. Next week, Ellen Lee will be back to bring you more in health research and news.